Hi there, my name is Trish Seymour. I practice as a hospitalist at the Memorial Campus for UMass Medical Center. And this podcast is one component of your interstitial day on patient safety and quality improvement. Specifically, in this podcast, we're going to be talking about what happens after a patient safety event occurs of some kind. For example, perhaps you witnessed a medical error or some unintended event happened to a patient you were caring for. We'll get more background about the history of the patient safety movement when we meet as a large group, but our intention here is to move some of our lecture content to podcast form to minimize our time together on the interstitial day. We'll be using this information from the podcast in a discussion and exercise during that interstitial. So we need to get some boring stuff out of the way so that we're all speaking the same language. Let's take a moment to talk about some definitions. The Institute of Medicine defines medical error as an act of commission, doing something wrong, or omission, failing to do the right thing, leading to some undesirable outcome or the potential for an undesirable outcome. Medical errors are preventable. This is different from adverse events because adverse events are defined as any unintended injury to a patient that's caused by medical management rather than the underlying condition of the patient. This may or may not be preventable. For example, if a patient has an acute myocardial infarction and undergoes appropriately a cardiac catheterization and develops contrast-induced nephropathy, that's not the result of medical error, but rather a known potential situation that can result from using contrast to visualize those coronary arteries. The nephropathy is an adverse event. If that patient had never come to the hospital, she certainly would not have developed contrast-induced nephropathy. She may, however, have had sequelae of untreated acute myocardial infarction, but there was not a medical error per se. Next, we should talk about what a near-miss is. This is an event or situation that could have resulted in an injury or harm to the patient, but it didn't because of some random chance or perhaps someone's timely intervention. A good example of a near-miss that you've probably seen on clinical rotations is when medication is ordered erroneously, and the pharmacist calls the team that entered the order to point this out, and then the order is corrected. That harm of receiving the wrong medication never reached the patient, but we should still look at what led to the erroneous order entry in the first place. Was it a medical knowledge deficit? Was it poor oversight of a junior trainee? Near misses like that are gold in the world of patient safety science. We get to learn how the system is failing without actually harm coming to a patient. Finally, I want to present a JCO term to you. JCO stands for the Joint Commission in Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, and these are the people that come and certify or accredit hospitals. The term is a sentinel event. And a sentinel event is some sort of unexpected occurrence that has a serious consequence like death or permanent physical disability or even serious psychological injury. When a sentinel event occurs in the hospital, a formal investigation needs to occur in order for our hospital to maintain its accreditation. So we've defined medical error, adverse event, a near miss, and a sentinel event. Now that we have these definitions out of the way, we can talk more specifically about what happens after you or your patient is involved in some sort of patient safety infraction. You may not even know if it's an adverse event or medical error right away. Perhaps you saw a procedure done on a patient with limited English proficiency and an interpreter was not used for consent. Or perhaps the wrong diagnostic test was done on a patient. Whether or not harm reaches the patient or the degree of harm should not be what prompts us to investigate such an event. All patient safety events should be reported and analyzed by the care team because identification and analysis are very important components to creating safer systems. Probably the first thing that needs to happen and something that both trainees and fully licensed clinicians are responsible for is the creation of an occurrence report. 
All hospital systems that you work in during your career will have some sort of reporting system or structure. You may have heard these referred to as incident reports, but occurrence reporting is a more accurate term. Here at UMass, we use a reporting system called Safety Intelligence, or SI. Again, everyone involved in the care of patients has the responsibility to report patient safety events through this occurrence reporting system. Unfortunately, in our current culture, physicians have low levels of reporting but I do think this is changing. Our nursing colleagues have done a better job adopting this culture of reporting and transparency, but reports from all types of staff help us to have a more 360-degree view of a problem or an event. I would like to talk you through UMass's system for reporting, which is very simple if you know where to look. During our interstitial day, you'll be filling out practice occurrence reports, so you'll be able to visualize this better. If you are at home on your computer, you can open Epic and follow along. Epic's the easiest way to access the online system, though it can also be done through the hub, which was previously known as RNet. This is the clinical system's homepage. At the very top of your Epic page, select the button for clinical resources. This should create a drop-down menu that brings you to the occurrence reporting system, among many other listed choices. If you select this, this will link you to the RNet page, which shows you where to initiate a report for a patient or visitor occurrence. Entering a report thereafter is really self-explanatory. But you do need to know some essential information, like the patient's name and the date that the event occurred. By default, the reporter's name is included, but these events can be reported anonymously as well or via phone to our risk management office. I think that's particularly important for trainees who might have some reservation about filling out reports when they are junior team members or filling out reports about people who may be giving you your grade later. Reporting is an important part of our system of safety because it allows risk management to look for patterns and determine where efforts should be focused to improve the safety of our patient care. When frontline providers like medical students and residents aren't taking the time to report this information on medical errors and near misses, risk management may not be aware of a situation until a sentinel event occurs. After reporting a medical error or around the same time, we should also be thinking about how to tell the patient and their family about what happened. We're going to spend some time talking about disclosure. After a medical error happens, doctors often wonder how much they should tell the patient or their patient's representative. Disclosure of a mistake or disclosure of an error can be a very challenging discussion, but it does need to occur. I want to reassure you that this doesn't increase litigation around that patient safety event. There's actually a wealth of literature on that topic. Most experts agree that there is a correct way to do this and some preparation for the conversation is essential. This structured disclosure conversation may seem intuitive for some of you and is similar to breaking other kinds of bad news in the medical setting. We should start by asking the patient or their family about their understanding of the events that occurred. You then want to state the plain facts of what happened, including the medical error itself. If you aren't sure of all the facts, you need to hold off on this conversation and this disclosure meeting until you know them. We should, as always, try to use plain language and avoid medical jargon. Be patient and expect an emotional response and be sure to allow room for it. Finally, invite and encourage any questions from the patient or their family. Sometimes we will be able to say what changes are going to be made in the future so that other patients and families don't have this happen to them. But oftentimes, at the time of the disclosure meeting, it's too early really to know what those countermeasures will be. Acknowledging that something bad happened to your patient can be really challenging and traumatic for us as clinicians. It's important to remember that you too will have an emotional response to this situation. It's ideal if somebody can help you with your continuing clinical obligations that day in this type of circumstance, but that's not always possible. 
most residency programs and certainly all medical schools have counseling services available should you experience this second victim phenomenon. Some doctors and other care team members actually find it therapeutic to turn their efforts to preventing future harm from coming to their patients from the same system failure. All Sentinel events are evaluated formally through institutional root cause analysis. Root cause analysis, though, can be used for any level of consequence or even for near miss where harm didn't come to the patient. If you've not heard this term before, a root cause analysis, or RCA, is a facilitated and structured team process that tries to identify the root cause of some event or some problem so that corrective actions can be developed. It's important to really understand the true underlying cause so that the wrong problem or more superficial problem is not the one that's fixed. In order for this process to be successful, all team members need to have the mindset of curiosity, impartiality, and comprehensiveness. Being overly solution-focused from the beginning can inhibit the identification of a root cause. It's amazing how quickly our minds turn to solutions, but we want to avoid this as much as possible. Essentially, the team wants to answer questions around what happened, why did it happen, and then move on to what changes need to be made. It is through this sort of analysis that the link between patient safety and quality improvement occurs. Ideally, we'll have all team members and all stakeholders represented at a root cause analysis. For example, if something happens to a hospitalized patient, like they receive the wrong medication, a root cause analysis should include those physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and perhaps even someone to represent the patient's voice, but probably not the patient who is involved. The team member will set out to define the problem gather evidence and data, and then identify and prioritize possible contributors. This is really just a brainstormed list of possible contributors to the problem. One technique for moving from this list of contributors to true root causes may be the five whys technique. The five whys is just what it sounds like, asking the question why in succession until you can no longer. At this point, you've reached a root cause. For example, With our representative case where a hospitalized patient received the wrong medication, you might say, why did that patient receive the wrong medication? Well, the nurse administered the medication. Why did the nurse administer that particular medication? This medication was sent up from the pharmacy because an order for this medication was placed by the doctor. Why did the doctor write that order? She wrote this order in the wrong patient's chart. It would have been the correct medication for a different patient that she was also working with that morning. Why did she enter the order in the wrong patient's chart? Well, she had multiple tabs open in the electronic medical record while she was rounding. The root cause of the problem is having multiple tabs open in the EMR with multiple patients. We'll talk more about this example when we come back to countermeasures, but you can see how intervening at the point where the nurse delivered the erroneously ordered medication to the patient would have been an inappropriate place and we would have missed the true root cause. Another technique for identification of root causes is less common in the patient safety realm, but more common with quality improvement. And this is the development of a fishbone or Ishikawa diagram. This is a visual outline of contributors using standardized groupings to look at the causes of the problem or the event. The traditional categories are materials, methods, equipment, and man or people. The head of the fishbone diagram is the event or the problem. In our example, the head of this fishbone diagram might be patient received the wrong medication. In terms of categories for the methods category, one example might be to look at the process for confirming medications with the patient at the bedside, or the process for appropriateness review by the pharmacy. When we talk about the equipment category, we can include how the electronic medical record supports or does not support medication ordering. 
The EMR allowing multiple different patients to be open at the same time might be listed here. Equipment usually refers to high-tech equipment involved in the problem or event. When talking about the man or people category, we may look at the training or independence level of the physician who wrote the order. Was her medical knowledge in deficit here? When talking about material, these are usually low-tech materials. For example, is there a paper checklist taped to each computer workstation that outlines the process for safe medication prescribing? I can imagine confirming the patient name to be an element on that posted checklist. And may, if posted at the point of care, remind clinicians to double-check. Not all countermeasures are created equal. They certainly vary in their strength and sustainability. Weak countermeasures are usually things like education or emailed reminders. These are weak interventions because they rely on human behavior to remember to do the right thing. Slightly stronger are things that you can include at the point of care, which will help guide you to make the right decisions, like standardized order sets or guidelines or checklists. Strong countermeasures are those things which create hard stops or forced functions. Re-engineered processes or simplified processes are also considered strong countermeasures. Strong countermeasures are built into the system and do not rely on human behavior or recall. In our example where the patient gets the wrong medication, a strong countermeasure for the root cause of multiple tabs being open would be to remove that possibility. If the EMR does not allow multiple tabs to be open at the same time, then it should be impossible to order the medication in the wrong chart for this reason. This is an example of a re-engineered process. Having a checklist taped to each workstation on wheels regarding medication safety would be a moderate countermeasure. It's something to guide behavior that's present at the point of care. A weak countermeasure would be holding a lecture for all the residents to remind them about safe medication ordering practices. Obviously, a stronger countermeasure is going to be more successful and more sustainable than a weaker one. Finally, we should briefly talk about the concept of just culture. In the distant past, errors, particularly in medicine, were felt to be due to one person screwing up. There was lots of blame and finger-pointing when something bad happened. Then the pendulum swung in the other direction, and institutions and systems were entirely responsible when something went wrong without any individual accountability. I think that the pendulum is starting to approach the center. Just culture is a framework of balanced accountability for both individuals and the organization responsible for designing and improving systems in the workplace. Engineering principles and human factors analysis influence the design of these systems so that they're safe and that they're reliable. Responding to medical error in a system of just culture starts with categorizing the nature of the error. If it's simply a product of our current system design, we would consider this just human error. For example, if a nurse grabs a look-alike, sound-alike medication out of the Pyxis, this is an example of human error. The system really needs to make these two drugs appear more distinct and potentially be retrieved from different places. A non-medical example might be backing out of a parking spot. This is an imperfect process and there's blind spots and there's some inherent risk. The second category of error in a system of just culture would be at-risk behavior. Imagine a very busy nurse who has patients at the end of a long hallway far from the med room who are both due for their medications. She might grab both bags of antibiotics at the same time and carry them to the end of the hallway. But she inadvertently switches the antibiotics and the patients get medications that weren't intended for them and potentially miss the doses of antibiotics that were aimed at their own infections. Because she was so busy, she believed that the risk was justified, but it resulted in harm. A non-medical example might be multitasking while driving. You got to eat breakfast and call your sister back, so you try to do it on the way to work. 
At-risk behavior is usually not malicious, but there is some conscious acceptance of risk. The third categorization of medical error in a system of just culture is reckless behavior. Reckless behavior is the conscious disregard of substantial risk. An example here might be a physician who shows up for work intoxicated or drunk driving as a non-medical example. There's deliberate disregard for potential risk in reckless behavior. You can see how these three categories of error actually need to be dealt with differently. Human error should really be addressed through system changes and possibly education. At-risk behavior necessitates some re-education, potentially light penalty, and perhaps system enhancement to support making the right choice. Finally, reckless behavior is addressed typically through penalization, such as losing one's job or license. I found this idea of balanced accountability between individuals and systems makes a lot of sense. I hope you have a sense now of what happens after a medical error or patient safety event, including the importance of reporting, disclosing, and investigating them. Errors can be painful and emotional for patients and for the healthcare team, but preventing them from happening again is one way to channel this. We can work towards improving the system after a medical error through root cause analysis and the development of meaningful, sustainable countermeasures. And we will practice this during your interstitial day. I hope you all go forward to create and participate in systems of just culture wherever you end up working.